0: Hi folks, it's Kevin. Just a brief word before the podcast begins. When I started Season 2 of Sascapes, one of the stories I wanted to feature in the series was that of the 60s scoop. Now, if you aren't aware of this rather dark time in Canadian history and culture, I hope by the end of these four episodes you will be. From the early 1960s through the late 1980s, there was a mass removal of Aboriginal children from their families into the child welfare system, and in most cases without the consent of their families or bands. Now, an estimated 20,000 kids were scooped up, hence the name Sixty Scoop. Episode 57 launched this series, and this is the continuation of my conversations that I had with four individuals who were taken from their families as children. Yes, they are sad stories, but they are also stories of strength courage, cultural pride, and forgiveness. I feel very honored to have had the opportunity to sit and listen to these stories, and I believe we have much to learn from them. Joining me for this episode is Carol Daniels. You're listening to Sascapes, a podcast featuring the stories of arts, culture, and heritage in Saskatchewan. Well, this is a treat.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm sitting here in Saskatoon in my very own living room with my pal, Carol Daniels. Mm-hmm. Hey, Carol. Hello. Carol's one of my co animators on this SAS Culture journey that we're mm-hmm. on this summer. How is that for you? Are you having fun? Oh,
1: I'm having a great time. We were out in uh, campsack the other day, mm-hmm. and it was brilliant planning because the people who brought me in, they... They had these little school-age children. We were doing our ladybug project, right, because yes. ladybugs are magic, I think. And <clears throat> we went over to the seniors' care home, and then we were dancing and doing some singing, and they were painting their bugs. And, and these beautiful seniors who, they were quite elderly, um, and a lot of them were in wheelchairs, so, you know, their mobility is limited. And they seemed kind of sad or tired when we came in. But this energy from the kids, oh, my God, they were clapping and, you know, basically joining in. And there were smiles everywhere. And it was just pure joy. So those moments Mm -hmm. are keeping me going, doesn't matter how busy it gets. Mm -hmm. Oh, just beautiful. Yeah. So I'm having fun.
0: Good. Always fun to hear (laughs) how you're doing. I wish that... The thing we're going to talk about now was fun but mm-hmm. um, it's an important story and a continuation of stories that I have been listening to and sharing with the audience and you are also part of this dreadful time in Canadian history called the 60s scoop mm-hmm. so let's start early on tell me where you were born
1: well, first of all, my family is from Sandy Bay, which is north of Pelican Narrows in northern Saskatchewan, right on the Churchill River, and it's right wild up there. You know, there's uh, bears and <laughs> wolves, and I mean, it's, it's the land as rugged as, as it can be in northern Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. Uh, people survive by fishing and a lot of moose, and you know, the land sustains them. So that's where my family is from. They're all fluently Cree. My mother my mother was a nurse, and um, this is what I've been told because mm-hmm. obviously I didn't grow up with my right. family. So what, what I can piece together is I was the only sibling taken away as a result of the scoop-up. And this is the best guess because my mother actually – died when i would have been about 13 so i can't ask her but the best guess is she came to regina while she was pregnant um she went into early labor and because she was a single aboriginal woman having a baby they took me away immediately and that's what they did with with uh immediately being in right out of the hospital yeah and and i've done a lot of writing about this um The thing that I've come up with is with the residential school survivors. When you think about it, those kids were in their communities until they were maybe six, seven, even eight years old. And then the Indian agent would come and take them away. So logically, when you're seven, you already know your roots, your family, your language. You have that really strong base. And so they took them away. And they did. They beat, beat, beat these kids up and tried to beat the Indian out of them, but because they had the roots, they weren't assimilating fast enough. And so some sinister bureaucrat said, hey, why don't we just take them right from the hospital? And that way they won't have any memories and it'll be easy to get rid of this Indian problem, right? And so that's what they started doing was just taking us right out of the hospital or right away from our parents, let's say if you were six months old, because you wouldn't have memories, at that time. But did, it, did your mother know you were being taken away? Well, yes, of course. Oh, no. I mean... They wouldn't come to her. No, they, no, no, no. It was no. when you're born. It's like, okay, here, sign this. We're taking your baby. She
0: didn't know what she was signing, probably. Well,
1: no, she may... They may have explained that we're taking her away. Hmm. Um, but the way uh, First Nations people were treated at that time, we really had no rights.
0: You had no voice.
1: No. And so, I, uh, you know... I always get so sad. <clears throat> Sorry Kevin. Okay. Okay. I put myself in her shoes because And you this have children. yeah, and that's the thing. I you know, I want everyone who's listening to put yourself in her shoes. So I have three children. And when they are inside before they've been born, you you have this total beautiful relationship with your baby. You can see, I remember Jackson, um, I'd always see him like poking poking mm-hmm. me from the inside and mm-hmm. my belly would actually move and, you know, I, I would talk to him and they're totally a part of who you are. And so to have him and, you know, if anyone had just taken him away, oh my God, talk about You know, your life being messed up and just horrible. And so that's what, that's what my mother would have gone through. And, and for anyone to say, oh, well, you know, get over it. It's like, no, I will not get over it. This was a terrible, terrible thing to disconnect me from my family and my culture and my community and my language. And what was worse is growing up in a white community just east of Regina was always being taught to be ashamed of being brown. Like, honest to goodness, by the time I was four, I I hated the fact that my skin was brown because everyone around me was white. And I wrote, I've written about this a couple times, where a memory of trying to wash the brown off in the bathtub and I had scrubbed so hard that it actually started to bleed. And uh, that's a horrible thing to... I hate myself that much as just a little girl because I had been taught that being brown is ugly and bad, and you know it's like what why would you teach me that that is just Whoa. horrible, and so in general terms, like you know the family I grew up with
0: did you go right to a family? Yes,
1: I did, and um the family I grew up with because I actually stayed in that in that family. They, I mean, they were nice people, you know, but when I think about it, they never should have taught me to hate Indians. <laughs> that's, that's basically what they taught me and the community taught me. And, uh, you know, I remember as as a young lady, after I had moved out and was working as a journalist and as one visit home, my older sister that I grew up with. Um, she had like some bruising on her arm and stuff. And I said, what did you do? She said, oh, fell off my bike the other day in Regina. I said, what do you mean you fell off your bike? And she said, well, I was driving down Broad Street and this greasy Indian just, you know, came around the corner really fast. And and if I didn't move out of the way, he would have ran me over. And I, when she said that, I said, you can't talk about Aboriginal people like that, you know, you have to realize I was maybe in my mid to late 20s. And then it was at that point I realized, oh, my God, I've been hearing this language all my life. I have ingested all of this hatred for First Nations people all of my life, hearing that they're lazy and dirty and stupid and all that other stuff that all those people in my community called Indians and they looked at me the same way, but you know, I was okay, I suppose, because, you know, I was I was living in a, with a nice family and we went to church and all, so I was sort of acceptable, but I was never really accepted mm-hmm. in that community or in that family, really. Mm. So, anyway, those are my roots. Do
0: you... Hey, it's Kevin. I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. Just a quick reminder that the Sascapes podcast is available for free on your favorite podcast app, or you can stream it from your browser. Check out the show notes for the link. On the Sascapes homepage, you'll notice something new under the logo called Sascapes Plus. You can't miss it. There's a big button saying support with a heart icon next to it. I'd love it if you could click on that button and help keep this podcast series going. How do you feel now about your adoptive family?
1: You know, it's interesting because um, I've been doing a lot of reading about other children who were taken away in the 60s, scoop up as well. And so many of them don't talk to those families anymore. And I, I used to think, oh, how can you do that? But I don't either. I no longer... Speak with that family. Mm -hmm. And the reason was exactly what I was talking about. Um, When I started to learn more about who I am, and there are so many beautiful things within our culture. And one of the main things, and I brought it, was my drum. Like Mm -hmm. the very first time, very first time I heard a drum, I lived in Calgary. I was working at CBC News World. And uh, this one, woman at the station said, Oh, are you going out to the Sutina powwow? And I thought, why would I want to go out to that? Like a whole bunch of Indians around. Oh God. You know, cause I had been taught to hate who I was and anyone else who was Brown. And then I saw, uh, the Calgary Herald had done a, a beautiful, uh, sort of a feature, you know, several stories about, about the powwow and stuff like that. So I was reading about it in the newspaper and the reserve is not far from the city. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to go, even though I had never gone before. So I went out there. I didn't know what to expect. I was fearful because, you know, you don't want to be around Indians. They're a bunch of devil worshippers and mm-hmm. all these other things I'd been told. Why did anyone tell me those things? <laughs> anyway, so I went out there and... They had their grand entry, and I don't know if you've ever been to a powwow. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. You Now I have. (laughs) Yeah, you know the grand entry then. It's it's gorgeous, and it's a spectacle of color and sound, and it's just amazing, all hundreds, sometimes thousands of dancers Mm -hmm. coming in, and they're all just so proud of who they are as, you know, a Dakota or Dene or Soto or Cree or whatever their nation is. And so I was standing there, and just tears started coming out of my eyes and I could hardly breathe I certainly couldn't speak but I was by myself anyway so Mm -hmm. so I wasn't going to talk to anybody but I was just so struck by how beautiful and powerful it was and it was that day I decided okay I I need to learn I need I need to learn about who we are because look at Look at all these people. Oh, my God, they're amazing and so proud and so strong. Those are my roots. Yeah. Those are my roots. And so it woke something up. And um, I, I don't, stuff happens to me. I just meet the right people or something goes and falls into, the, into place at the exact right time. And so I had, uh, I have no idea, but I had managed to meet, um, a bunch of people who were also powwow dancers. And then I started to meet elders, you know, in Calgary who were from the neighboring first nations communities. And so they were the ones who helped me to put together an outfit and, you know, you have to figure out what style of dance you want to do. And of course, um, the fancy dance, is you know, what you'd want to gravitate towards because it's it's fast and it's just i don't know it mm-hmm. it's great uh it's great exercise but the jingle dress dance is what i was really attracted to because it's a healing dance it's from the ojibwe and and it's it's a, a dance meant to heal either yourself or those around you and i thought okay this is the one i need to do so so I started to dance, and then uh, something similar happened. Also, while I was living in Calgary, um, I had gone on an assignment out to the BAMP Center for the Arts because there was a there was this project called the Women's Voices Project, and it was the the BAMP Center Indigenous Arts Program. They brought together all of these women drummers from all over Canada to collaborate and and you know create a whole bunch of new original songs. And so I was there just doing a radio documentary about what are you doing? you know. <laughs> and so, again, that was another time where I was just so profoundly touched by these women singing with their drums, and, and I, want, I wanted to be a part of it. And so one of the women from Six Nations said, well, if you want to sing and drum – get a drum and start singing, right? And so I've been doing that um, for years too. So when I, my transition from this absolute shame to just finding the beauty was totally because of the drum. And so not speaking to the family that brought me up, it also it also has to do with the drum. Um, I found that the more I walked towards my culture and and learned and got to know people and started getting involved in powwow or doing bead work or just expressing myself that way and being proud of who I am as a Cree, Um, I found every time I went a little further towards my culture, I would go a few steps away from that family that raised me because they were so ashamed. I mean, they were always ashamed of me in some weird sort of masked way. Um, but now that I was being expressive about it, it was a very shameful thing to them. And I remember this one time we had, uh, it was Mother's Day. And so me and my children, and then this uh, other family of cousins, we decided to uh, have a surprise Mother's Day brunch, right? And so that's what we did. We organized it and, and then you know, brought our moms together and, and all of the kids and grandkids and all that were there. And, and uh, I thought, you know what, I'm going to sing with my drum while I'm here because no one in my family had ever heard me sing with my drum. So you've heard me, and yeah. I, I love to do it. Mm-hmm. It makes me happy. Mm-hmm. It makes a lot of people happy. So I was singing with my drum, and all my cousins are looking at me going, oh, my God, she's really good, right? We didn't know you could sing. And while I was singing, the woman who I used to call my mom was sitting there looking, like, shocked that I would be up there. Why are you doing this, Right. And then she actually covered her ears while I was singing and drumming. And that hurt Mm -hmm. my feelings like you can't imagine. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the Catholic Church for years and years and years, those women would sing at the top of their lungs off key like every Mm -hmm. Sunday. And she never put her hands to her ears. But there's me singing beautifully with my drum and she has to cover her ears, you know. So th- those types of things kept happening. But the real reason I no longer speak to them is because I, I met my husband when I was 48. I'd never been married before because I was waiting, <laughs> mm-hmm. waiting for the right man to show up. Mm-hmm. And it took a long time, but I was waiting. And so Lyle Daniels, he is, um, well, he's, his family's from Gordon's and Kawakatu's First Nations in Saskatchewan. And he's very, very proudly Cree and involved in the community and the culture and practicing traditions. And he, I don't think you've ever met him. Mm -mm. He looks. I've seen the picture. Yeah. He, he's got that look. Like if he, if he, you took him back in history, he'd have a look of those old chiefs, you know, that they, he, Mm -hmm. he looks like a, a Cree, right? I think he's just so handsome and beautiful, but anyway, that's, you can tell when you look at him, that that man is a creed, right? He's just got all those features. And um, anyway, when I married him, everybody who I had grown up with was just so ashamed that I was going to have a traditional Aboriginal ceremony um, that nobody showed up for my wedding. My mom didn't come to my wedding because there were too many Indians there. And it's like, you know what? i gotta cut you guys loose, you know i I read a lot about removing toxic people from mm-hmm. your life, and it's like sadly, they were those people.
0: What about your adoptive father?
1: Oh, well, see all this stuff, this drift apart didn't happen as pronounced as it has been in the last few years. it didn't happen until after my dad died your adopted my father. adopted dad, yeah, because I honestly believe that the family probably wouldn't even have adopted me if it wasn't for my dad i think my dad i think my dad's the only one who actually really accepted me you know like i i remember um the brothers and sisters i grew up with and little girl um and i'd be called an ugly squaw and I'm like these are my brothers and sisters and picking fights with me and all this stuff and my dad was always the only one to step in and be the peacemaker. You know, my dad was the only one who never called me down. I never heard him say anything bad about, you know, First Nations people or anything. It was always everyone else in the family. And so it was that woman, right? Um, I'm sure that she would never even have thought of adopting me except for him. And so when he died, I thought, well, you know, he's kind of the only The only reason I could Mm -hmm. even call this a family, Mm -hmm. and he's gone, so I'm going to just leave too. Because remember when we came back from northern Canada, my children were young teens, and uh, we were were staying with my mom. My dad was already gone, because I was trying to figure out what I'm going to do, because I had left a very stable job in the media in northern Canada, and I just... Moved back one day and I said, I got to move home. Like, I am not happy here. Um, I got to leave this media business because I'm an artist and I want to <laughs> make a living as an artist. Like, I mean, anyone who says that, you look at them and say, you, you're crazy. And it's like, <laughs> well, you know, maybe I am, but I, I got to try, right? Yeah. So I had no idea where I was going to settle. And um, just came back to Saskatchewan and thought, okay, I'll get back here. And then I'll figure it out from there. So I was with, we stayed at my mom's um, for a few days. And in those those days, she called my children wild Indians because they had stayed out past nine o'clock or whatever at night. It's a small town. And then she also, in that same sentence, said the words, what will the neighbors think? Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know what? Mm-hmm. That's exactly how you raised me. What will the neighbors mm-hmm. think? And I just thought, you know, if if in any insidious way you're thinking that it's okay for you to teach the same shame mm-hmm. to my kids, forget it. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, yeah. Just
0: how do you put yourself in that environment, knowing what you're up against, without lashing out, without getting angry and Putting her in her place.
1: Well, i I can't do that okay. because that is hateful, and I cannot be a part of that. So, rather than say what I really want to say, I'm just not talking to you at all mm-hmm. ever again. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, yeah, because they're like, what's the point of being hateful and hurtful? Because I've been hurt, you know. Mm. Um,
0: There's a sense of no. revenge?
1: Or oh God, no! What's the point? There's no right. point, right? So what I what I will do? I was, you know, I was taught some good things growing up. There, I was taught good manners. My dad was he had an amazing work ethic, and so I got that from him. Um, you know, so there were there were some good things that I was taught, and I will take those good things and I will couple them with all the beautiful things that I have since found within my own culture, and that is what I'm going to present to the world, not some angry, crazy, you know, person who's blaming, and I there's no point in doing that. We have to take take stuff and and try to build it and make it into something beautiful, because that's how we started out. We started out beautiful, and then it got upset because of some idiotic, Government policy, but we need to go back and find that beauty and nurture that and let it grow I mean honest to goodness, why would you be angry and I mean it's okay to be angry but don't act like that you know There's just no point So to
0: what do you attribute because not not everybody who was part of the scoop um, who got out on their own eventually um, stayed. With a sense of self, many fell off the rails for a while before getting things back together again. To what do you attribute your, your not doing
1: that? Okay. Um, I, I don't know how to explain this, but I have always thought that, like the whole idea of guardian angels, mm-hmm. I have lots of them around me, and I have always had them around me, and so they were the ones who protected me from those harmful, terrible names that I was, and those feelings like when you're just a little girl and, and you're so vilified. and um, So they've always been there. And somehow I've always been guided spiritually. And, and I have this massive belief, not, not because of the church, just because I've always known, and since I've reconnected with, with my own culture, this, this massive belief in Creator and goodness, and love, and all of those things. I don't know why I'm like that. Mm-hmm. I think it's because I'm an artist, Kevin. Mm-hmm. Honest to goodness, I think just the way somebody who is a writer um, or or creates something, um, like a painter, mm-hmm. creates something out of nothing. Um, yeah, we just view the world differently, and mm. <sighs> that's the way God made us. <laughs> Do
0: you, <laughs> you know? find it coming out in your artwork, um, mm-hmm. some of the for the lack of a better word, anger coming oh, out. Oh yeah, in your, uh, yeah. And in your writing.
1: Mhm. Well, yeah, and that's the other thing I have, a novel coming out which I'm very happy about. It's called Bearskin Diary and it's being released in October 2015. Worldwide, so you can, you know, you can read it as an ebook or you can pick it up in a store and it's the underlying story is about the scoop up. And all of the it's it's fiction, right? Mm-hmm. But there are probably some things in there that I borrowed from real occurrences in my life or things that I have been told by other people. And there's a lot of angst in there. There's a lot of disconnection and a lot of anger. And but then again, the char- you can't stay like that. So the character and real life characters, you have to grow. You know, somehow you gotta find those pieces. Put them back together. Because you've got children now, and you're going to have grandchildren, and you know you're part of a community and just start celebrating the good things, and eventually stuff will fall into place and you will never find any decent answer to the question of why did this happen you never find it, Mm -hmm. don't even look for it look at what you have now and say okay here I am and how am I gonna move forward? I'm not gonna be all angry and weird because that it's just too it hurts the heart. Like it just doesn't make sense to And to you're be not that way.
0: spending your life waiting for um a political apology?
1: Well, I guess that's gonna be happening in mm-hmm. Saskatchewan, supposedly. Mm-hmm. Um, will it
0: make a difference to you?
1: It probably will. It probably will. Cause I remember I was actually working at the C B C up north when the uh, federal government made that formal apology to residential school kids. Mm -hmm. And there were some people who I worked with who had gone to residential school, and when he made the apology, they just started to cry. Mm -hmm. And I know why they did. It's because they went back Mm -hmm. to the time when they were beaten or whatever had Mm -hmm. happened to them in residential school. And so for them, it, it was meaningful that somebody said, it shouldn't have happened, right? Mm. And so, yeah, it probably will have some type of meaning for me. But I will never be able to meet, you know, my biological mom. Well, I will. I mean, someday I'll die and go to the spirit world. I'll meet mm-hmm. her then. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, there there are things that will never be undone.
0: I hope you're enjoying this episode. Did you know that all episodes of Sascapes can be downloaded or streamed for free? You can find us in the iTunes Store, on Stitcher Radio, and at iHeartCulture.ca. And I'm so excited to announce that Sascapes now has its own app for both Apple and Android devices. Head over to the App Store or Google Play and have Sascapes at your fingertips with just one easy tap. Remember, we love hearing from you with your feedback in the review section. And now, back to the podcast. Tell me about how you started to find a connection with your birth family that were still okay alive.
1: Yeah, my my, I got so many sisters. Oh my god, <laughs> they're all so crazy and so funny. They just and they're all fluently Creep. And you had not
0: known no, any of them?
1: No, of and what happened was it was I think the mid-1990s and the government of Saskatchewan, and I don't know why every government does, doesn't do this, but the government of Saskatchewan brought in an idea that let's open the adoption records. And wh- what we mean by that is these kids who've been adopted, if they have any wish to reconnect with their birth family, you write a letter to the Ministry of Social Services and say, you know, hi, I'm Carol Ann. Um, This is when I was born, blah, 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 blah. I was adopted and I wish to find my birth family. And so what had to happen is the kid who was adopted had to write a letter and the family had to write a letter saying we wish to be reconnected with any children who may have been adopted from our family. And so there again, it was like, just by chance. um, My one sister... Don't even know why she wrote a letter saying yes, let, because they had, well, I guess they they had known, right? But they didn't know where I was, whether I was still alive. I mean, a lot of people died or, or killed themselves. Um, so anyway, that's how I met my birth family was we both wrote a letter and then we were reconnected. Where did you reconnect? Um, Actually... I was living in Alberta, and I had a sister who was living in Edmonton. And so I drove to Edmonton from Calgary. Other of my family drove to Edmonton, and we met at her house.
0: Tell me about that day.
1: Well, it was, I didn't know what to expect. I was uh, nervous, I suppose, because I, you know, as you know, I had been hearing that all Indians are just drunks and thieves and lazy, and so I didn't know what to expect. You know, am I going to, is she going to ask me for money or, you know what I mean? And I thought, well, I, I just need, I need to know. And so I went in there and, uh, I found this wonderful, loving young family because she had three kids of her own. I didn't have any at that point. And yeah, um, my one sister was a nurse, like my mother and my other sister who was there, she's like a teacher teaches Cree language and yeah so these these people who were my biological family were just regular people you know and did you look alike no huh no but they showed me a picture of my mother mm-hmm. and I look so much like her
0: now would that have been the first time you saw a picture yes. of your yes
1: yes that's the first time I that saw.
0: must have been amazing
1: it was it was I I have the it, like you, I'm sitting here in your living room and there's pictures of people. Mm-hmm. I have her picture in my living room mm-hmm. prominently displayed. I've never met her, like I said. But yeah, I look very similar to my biological mom.
0: But your siblings would have had a uh, memory of
1: her. Oh yeah. they. And so they, were they, they
0: able to tell you stories?
1: They Yeah, I've heard many stories about my mother. Um, but I mean you have to realize too that the the stories from the Moran side of my family, she died when they were children, too. So their memories are from a child's memory, mm-hmm. right? But I've talked to aunties and neighbors and friends of hers, and everybody describes her as like she was just a really lovely woman who loved to laugh and was helpful and somebody I would like to have known. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Do you think you would have been talked about in your birth family um, before you had reconnected? Do you think... I'm sure I was. Were they aware of you?
1: They were aware of me. So, yeah, which is why they wrote... um, You know, when they wrote that letter...
0: They wrote the letter...
1: To the Ministry of Social Services when the the adoption records were open. And...
0: Did you both write?
1: Yes. And that was the thing. It's like, you know, by chance... I could have said, "Uh, I'm not really interested. And I bet you there were a lot of kids who didn't write a letter. Mm -hmm. And the reason would have been the same reason I've just been talking about. We were taught to hate ourselves Mm -hmm. and our people and to be ashamed and all that stuff. And so there are so many people who still carry that shame. They're now like 50 but they're still just as ashamed as they were when they were five. And so I suppose with, with art and writing and doing what I do uh, as spoken word, uh, theatrical, is to try and prompt something to say, take that step. Mm-hmm. You really owe it to yourself, but more so to your children and grandchildren to take that step and start to learn That everything we were told was a lie, basically. So recreate your own reality, even though you don't know what it is if you've been scooped up. But you got to take the step and start to learn and just do it. How... Hmm.
0: For those who haven't taken that step, for whatever circumstances they were born into, their life path took. um, And of course, uh, a life that's been derailed knows no boundaries. It's not a cultural thing. It crosses all cultural boundaries. But for those within the First Nations community, knowing what you know, when you encounter people within the First Nations community who are less fortunate... Who, you know, who haven't found healing, what happens for you inside? I mean, obviously you can't walk up to everybody and talk to them, but how does that affect you?
1: Um, I have this profound sadness when I realize that they still wear this cloak of shame. Mm-hmm. And I do what I can to try and demonstrate that there's nothing... Horrific or hideous about who we are as First Nations people because, again, we were taught that. Mm. Um, And it's it's so easy to spot those people because they'll still be ashamed of, you know, let's say you're downtown and somebody walks up to you and they happen to be, you know, a brown-skinned person and they're asking for money. And they'll be the ones who will scoff at them. And it's like, get a job, right? And right. it's like, you know what? That person could be you. Yeah. It could be you. So get off your damn high horse and have a little humility and compassion and try to realize that, you know, not everyone handled that point in history well. Some of us have gone out of our way now, like myself, to, to write about it and, and speak about it. Um, Others have nothing to do with our communities. They totally Mm. live like a white person, you know, and that is just sad. I don't know what you can do for them. And then the other person will be someone who is just so broken down that, you know, maybe they're a street person now. But I don't know. It's.
0: Why do we take that as the stereotype?
1: Why do we take it as the stereotype? I don't know. What
0: you know, I remember when I first met you, you said something that you probably weren't even aware <laughs> that you said. You you were remember you were about to make your presentation mm-hmm. and we and we were in Yorkton and you had forgotten your glasses and you had said you're completely blind and and you had Recounted some place you had been. You were telling me where you had forgotten your glasses, and you said the and, and you said the woman looked me. at you like the, like oh <laughs> no. you can't read. What
1: she gave me something. Somebody had given me something to read, mm. and I didn't have my reading glasses. And I said oh I can't read this, and she automatically assumed that I was illiterate <laughs> because I'm an Indian, you know I can't read because and it's like yeah no I I get those. Yeah, you do? mm -hmm, I I still get those stereotypes. But, you know, I I don't even say anything. It's like I I have, again, because of my dad, this, what is it, a destination Mm -hmm. of excellence. No matter what you do, you do your very best to your ability. And so that's how I do everything. Um, And I've done a lot of things in my life. And so, sometimes if somebody's getting on that, on on that, let's hate Indians and say really rotten things, um, I have a lot of things to throw at them. Not in a mean way, mm-hmm. but, you know, personally, I've done a lot of things in my life, and I've accomplished a lot, a lot. I mm-hmm. um, actually went to law school. <laughs> it was really bizarre. Did you? I did. I have gone to law school. I don't have my degree, but... One one day, I decided. Oh, I think I'll go to law school, you know. And so I I went and wrote my LSAT, and I did really well. I was within the top ten percentile for marks. Obviously, got accepted and went and studied. And uh, and actually, I was the first indigenous woman to be appointed as a member of the bench for the Law Society of Manitoba when I when I worked at APTN. Yeah, I mean, I've I've done that. Um, I. I spent more than 30 years uh, with a career in media, working all across Canada with CBC, APTN, CTV, different radio stations. I'm now a published author. Um, yeah, so I've done a lot of stuff. And 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 I know a lot of really wonderful people who are so traditional and spiritual in our own First Nations uh, community that I'm able to sort of derail any any type of hatred or stereotype uh-huh. you're going to throw at me. But I don't do it in a mean way because, uh-huh. again, there's no point. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, somebody says something or does something, and it's like, you know what, here's another demonstration of how wonderful we are, <laughs> and, and uh-huh. then I'll tell them a story about somebody who's done something amazing. And one of the most amazing people in my life has been Lyle's mom, who sadly passed away this this spring but that woman holy cow she she was like four foot ten <laughs> just so determined to do anything because um, she had suffered a stroke a few years before so she she didn't have the use of one of her arms but that that didn't stop her from doing bead work and and when Lyle and I got married she sewed all the ribbon shirts and she sewed me a wedding dress it's beautiful but I had to tell her Lily, I've already got one, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so, but I still have the dress that she mm-hmm. made and I've given it to a friend of mine because I want her to, to make a few, uh, adjustments to it and I'm going to use it as a powwow dress because I know Lily would have loved that. So yeah, um, the, the stereotype again, it's like, you know, if somebody is going to do that, what they're doing is throwing hate at you, trying to make you ashamed. I'm tired Mm-hmm. Of you trying to make me ashamed. But I'm not going to throw hate back at you. I am going to throw love and light back at you. So you're ashamed of being so small-minded. And being, you know, so hateful towards a whole group of people who you don't even know what we've gone through. I mean, again, when, when we started this conversation, it's like, if if you can imagine your child being born... And somebody taking that baby away immediately upon birth. And you're never going to see them again. I want you to imagine what that would do to you. And that's what we went through.
0: So, How often do you get together with your birth family now?
1: I get, well, as often as possible. Like, I, I probably see people in my biological family, I don't know, every couple of months. They, they still, everyone's up north, right?
0: How many siblings? Ultimately, oh. a whack of cousins. I know. Yeah.
1: I okay. It's a it's a confusing thing. So I have six. I have like ten uh-huh. brothers and sisters, mostly sisters. I'm a middle child. <laughs> so, right. Anyway, yeah. Okay. There you go. My oldest sister is one of the most amazing people I've ever met. She works with Northland's College. She's a former teacher. As well. And, uh, yeah, oh, my God, that woman, she's just, uh, she has so much grace and patience. And, you know, like, I would have totally loved to have grown up with her. Maybe you'll meet her someday, Kevin. She's like one of those people you were talking about where where you meet them Mm -hmm. and you just love them right away because they exude that beauty from inside and its kindness and mm-hmm. you know so that's that's my family and they eat neck bones you know
0: <laughs> they what
1: <laughs> they they f- they fight over neck bones right
0: like a f- like
1: like poultry. from a moose
0: oh from a moose yeah yeah uh-huh. there's
1: a whole bunch of like really succulent meat and cartilage that uh, and you know a moose's neck is pretty big right and so every time somebody gets a moose they fight over who's going to get the neck bones it's really funny
0: that's so, so funny. My mother does that with pork chop bones. Oh we just pile them up on a plate and she yeah. gnaws away.
1: Yeah, here you go. Yeah, <laughs> so they do stuff like that. And uh, it's just, it's nice. And, and, oh, yeah, so this is the other thing. In my novel, and, and other things I've done, there's some Cree language. And so it was my oldest sister, Janice, and my other sister, Brenda, for the, and, and Gertie. Like, there's just so many people, if I say, okay, I need some help with this, they help me with the language. And so I told, I told Janice the other day, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but by the end of 2017, so I'm giving myself a couple of years, I am going to come out northern Saskatchewan. When I visit, I'm going to be fluent. I'm going to be speaking to you. Hmm. <laughs> and It's like, I have no idea how I'm going to uh-huh. do it, but I'm going to do it.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. So there you go. And I will. Because my children obviously are not fluent. None of us are. And, but I, I will be a grandma someday and I'm going to teach those kids Cree, which means I have to learn myself. Right. And that's the other thing. Like people will lament. Oh, you know, the language was taken from me. Well, it was. So go learn. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) go learn. Mm -hmm. If you, if you want that, if you, you want to reclaim those parts of yourself, then just go and learn. And reclaim them and stop asking for permission to be beautiful because you are, you know. So just go find those pieces and reconnect them. You're going to be okay.
0: You don't ever see yourself um, seeing your adoptive
1: family again? No. No, I don't. How will you
0: feel? This is a ridiculous question. How can you imagine you will feel when you hear that your adoptive mom has passed,
1: you know it's interesting that you say that because I wrote about a short story, a fiction uh, story about that very thing. Did you? Oh yeah, no, I. So you have thought about it? Oh, of course I have. And it's like, okay, well, what do I do? Do I go to the funeral or do I pretend I didn't see the obituary or whatever? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, no, I there's there's really no. Mm -hmm. no reason to go Um, because the death of that relationship happened a long time ago. Yeah. So, you know, I'm thankful I was there and I was, you know, I was living in a house where I wasn't beaten or, you know what I mean? Like I, you hear a lot of stories. I mean, my brother, my younger brother, my older brother would pick fights with me and stuff. But in general, I had a, a decent upbringing except for, you know, the the things that hurt your spirit um, where, you know, I'd come home from school in tears because they were teasing me. And it was like that all the time, right? Um, so those things were not good. But in general, you know, we had enough to eat and I learned some really good stuff about gardening. And you know what I mean? So
0: when did you have... Can you remember the first time you had um, food, indigenous to your own culture?
1: Yes. Well, that was the very first time I met my family. Okay. They served a moose roast, and I was afraid to eat it. Why? Because it's like, I don't, well, moose. moose. <laughs> yeah, it's like, right. yeah, no, they, you know, my brother had killed a moose up in northern Saskatchewan. And they mm-hmm. sent this great big hunk of meat, right?
0: Along with the neck.
1: Yeah. (laughs) And so, yeah, that was the first time I had eaten wild meat. And actually, since then, my husband doesn't, he doesn't uh, hunt, but we know a few people who do. And so I crave wild meat now. And so when I'm able to get some, it's it's a big deal or some, you know, fish from a northern lake or something like that. Mm. Yeah. And so I'm glad that those food memories are part of me now, you know. So, Do you
0: bring any of that um that cuisine those recipes into your life now? oh yeah like well, bannock on the table always
1: <laughs> I make really good Bannock Kevin. <laughs> Do you know when
0: we were Frenchman Butte that mm-hmm. was the first time I'd ever had bannock <laughs> I'd never had it before.
1: Oh gee I'm mm. <clears throat> I make it over a campfire sometime I will make you some bannock over a fire. It's so good but yeah no I I um I, I'm trying to learn as much as I can because, as I said before, I decided to work as an artist full time. I was a journalist, and the last place I was posted in that in that regard was up in northern Canada. We lived in Yellowknife, and so there were lots of people up there who would regularly hunt caribou. And because I was a single mom with three kids, they'd always give me meat, right? And so, and dry meat and dried fish and oh my god some of the just the most amazing flavors that all come from the land so yeah we're we're well acquainted with uh with wild game mostly because you know we spent several years up in the northwest territories and people still eat off the land up there it's really cool
0: (laughs) you want to sing something for me
1: Mm. yeah sure I've been with a women's drum group a couple of times in my life, and so the uh, wonderful women in in Manitoba. This is a song from uh, from that point of time in time, and it's a Soto song. It's a healing song, basically saying you know to your your grandmother and your grandfather and the spirits that surround you. You know, just thanking them for for guiding you. And that's basically what it is. So uh... well, hey. good
0: singing is indeed good i find (laughs) that myself
1: (laughs) oh the one thing okay i do i do say this every because i talk to god every day Mm -hmm. and i always give thanks for allowing me to express myself through art because i swear kevin i don't know what would happen to me if i wasn't able to let those things out to let that hurt out and say, okay, you were a part of me, now you can leave. (laughs) And and you can do that with writing and you can do that with singing and you can do that with painting or whatever. Um and so that that's the one thing I would say to anyone, whatever type of pain it is, find a way to let it go. And if you're lucky enough, you might be able to write. I want you to write poetry or (laughs) short stories or whatever. But acknowledge it and then let it go. So, yeah, the one thing that I do every day is I talk to God and I say, thank you for giving me this gift of creativity because I'm able to turn it around and in that way deal with it myself. And hopefully other people will, you know, take those steps towards finding their own way of making it through as we need to do that to move forward.
0: Thanks for sharing your story with me. No problem. I feel very privileged every time (laughs) I hear one of these stories to be let in on something that's very personal.
1: Yeah it is but you know I talk about it because I can because like I said I've found ways to let go of that pain if you haven't i think it's really hard to talk about so again i'm just encouraging people to find your own way to let it go well
0: fellow animateur we'll bump into (laughs) you on the road somewhere in saskatchewan (laughs) over the next few months as we continue
1: well i'll see you yeah we're doing that radio interview next week cool thanks carol no problem
0: (laughs) thanks for listening the Sascapes Podcast is created and hosted by Kevin Power for SAS Culture. Funding to the cultural sector is provided through the Saskatchewan Lotteries Trust Fund for Sport, Culture, and Recreation. For more information, visit iHeartCulture.ca and sasculture.ca. Music for Sascapes is provided by Saskatchewan-born singer-songwriter Jeffrey Straker. There's no end to the stories to be told. So until next time.